Section 17 of Eminent Victorians by Lytton Strachey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The End of General Gordon, Part 1. During the year 1883, a solitary English gentleman was to be seen, wandering, with a thick book under his arm, in the neighborhood of Jerusalem. His unassuming figure, short and slight, with its half-gliding, half-tripping motion, gave him a boyish aspect, which contrasted oddly, but not unpleasantly, with the touch of grey on his hair and whiskers. There was the same contrast, enigmatic and attractive, between the sunburnt brick-red complexion, the hue of the seasoned traveller, and the large blue eyes with their look of almost childish sincerity. To the friendly inquirer he would explain, in a low, soft, and very distinct voice, that he was engaged in elucidating four questions, the sight of the crucifixion, the line of division between the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, the identification of Gideon, and the position of the Garden of Eden. He was also, he would add, most anxious to discover the spot where the ark first touched ground after the subsidence of the flood. He believed, indeed, that he had solved that problem, as a reference to some passages in the book which he was carrying would show. This singular person was General Gordon, and his book was the Holy Bible. In such complete retirement from the world and the ways of men, it might have seemed that a life of inordinate activity had found at last a longed-for final peacefulness. For month after month, for an entire year, the general lingered by the banks of the Jordan. But then the enchantment was suddenly broken. Once more adventure claimed him. He plunged into the whirl of high affairs. His fate was mingled with the frenzies of empire and the doom of peoples. And it was not in peace and rest, but in ruin and horror, that he reached his end. The circumstances of that tragic history, so famous, so bitterly debated, so often and so controversially described, remain full of suggestion for the curious examiner of the past. There emerges from those obscure, unhappy records an interest not merely political and historical, but human and dramatic. One catches a vision of strange characters, moved by mysterious impulses, interacting in queer complication, and hurrying at last, so it almost seems, like creatures in a puppet-show, to a predestined catastrophe. The characters, too, have a charm of their own. They are curiously English. What other nation on the face of the earth could have produced Mr. Gladstone, and Sir Evelyn Baring, and Lord Hardington, and General Gordon? Alike in their emphasis, and their lack of emphasis, in their eccentricity, and their conventionality, in their matter-of-factness and their romance, these four figures seem to embody the mingling contradictions of the English spirit. As for the mise-en-scene, it is perfectly appropriate. But first, let us glance at the earlier adventures of the hero of the piece. Charles George Gordon was born in 1833. His father, of highland and military descent, was himself a lieutenant-general. His mother came of a family of merchants, distinguished for their sea voyages into remote regions of the globe. 
As a boy, Charlie was remarkable for his high spirits, pluck, and love of mischief. Destined for the artillery, he was sent to the academy at Woolwich, where some other characteristics made their appearance. On one occasion, when the cadets had been forbidden to leave the dining-room, and the senior corporal stood with outstretched arms in the doorway to prevent their exit, Charlie Gordon put his head down, and, butting the officer in the pit of the stomach, projected him down a flight of stairs and through a glass door at the bottom. For this act of insubordination he was nearly dismissed, while the captain of his company predicted that he would never make an officer. A little later, when he was eighteen, it came to the knowledge of the authorities that bullying was rife at the academy. The newcomers were questioned, and one of them said that Charlie Gordon had hit him over the head with a clothes-brush. He had worked well, and his record was on the whole a good one, but the authorities took a serious view of the case, and held back his commission for six months. It was owing to this delay that he went into the Royal Engineers instead of the Royal Artillery. He was sent to Pembroke to work at the erection of fortifications, and at Pembroke those religious convictions, which never afterwards left him, first gained a hold upon his mind. Under the influence of his sister Augusta, and of a very religious captain of the name of Drew, he began to reflect upon his sins, look up texts, and hope for salvation. Though he had never been confirmed, he never was confirmed, he took the sacrament every Sunday, and he eagerly perused the priceless diamond, Scott's commentaries, and the remains of the Reverend R. McChain. No novels or worldly books, he wrote to his sister, come up to the commentaries of Scott. I remember well when you used to get them in numbers, and I used to laugh at them. But thank God it is different with me now. I feel much happier and more contented than I used to do. I did not like Pembroke, but now I would not wish for any prettier place. I have got a horse and gig, and Drew and myself drive all about the country. I hope my dear father and mother think of eternal things. Dearest Augusta, pray for me, I beg of you. He was twenty-one, the Crimean War broke out, and before the year was over he had managed to get himself transferred to Balaclava. During the siege of Sebastopol he behaved with conspicuous gallantry. Upon the declaration of peace he was sent to Bessarabia to assist in determining the frontier between Russia and Turkey, in accordance with the Treaty of Paris, and upon this duty he was occupied for nearly two years. Not long after his return home in 1860, war was declared upon China. Captain Gordon was dispatched to the scene of operations, but the fighting was over before he arrived. Nevertheless, he was to remain for the next four years in China, where he was to lay the foundations of extraordinary renown. Though he was too late to take part in the capture of the Taku forts, he was in time to witness the destruction of the summer palace at Peking, the act by which Lord Elgin, in the name of European civilization, took vengeance upon the barbarism of the East. The war was over, but the British army remained in the country until the payment of an indemnity by the Chinese government was completed. A camp was formed at Tianjin, and Gordon was occupied in setting up huts for the troops. While he was thus engaged, 
he had a slight attack of smallpox. I am glad to say, he told his sister, that this disease has brought me back to my Saviour, and I trust in future to be a better Christian than I have been hitherto. Curiously enough, a similar circumstance had, more than twenty years earlier, brought about a singular succession of events which were now upon the point of opening the way to Gordon's first great adventure. In 1837, a village schoolmaster near Canton had been attacked by illness, and, as in the case of Gordon, illness had been followed by a religious revulsion. Hong Su Tsuen, for such was his name, saw visions, went into ecstasies, and entered into relations with the deity. Shortly afterwards, he fell in with a Methodist missionary from America, who instructed him in the Christian religion. The new doctrine, working upon the mystical ferment already in Hong's mind, produced a remarkable result. He was, he declared, the prophet of God. He was more. He was the son of God. He was Tian Wang, the celestial king. He was the younger brother of Jesus. The times were propitious, and proselytes soon gathered round him. Having conceived a grudge against the government, owing to his failure in an examination, Hong gave a political turn to his teaching, which soon developed into a propaganda of rebellion against the rule of the Manchus and the Mandarins. The authorities took fright, attempted to suppress Hong by force, and failed. The movement spread. By 1850, the rebels were overrunning the populous and flourishing delta of the Yangtze Kiang, and had become a formidable force. In 1853, they captured Nanking, which was henceforth their capital. The Tian Wang established himself in a splendid palace and proclaimed his new evangel. His theogony included the wife of God, or the celestial mother, the wife of Jesus, or the celestial daughter-in-law, and a sister of Jesus, whom he married to one of his lieutenants, who thus became the celestial son-in-law. The Holy Ghost, however, was eliminated. His mission was to root out demons and Manchus from the face of the earth, and to establish Taiping, the reign of eternal peace. In the meantime, retiring into the depths of his palace, he left the further conduct of earthly operations to his lieutenants, upon whom he bestowed the title of Wangs, kings, while he himself, surrounded by thirty wives and one hundred concubines, devoted his energies to the spiritual side of his mission. The Taiping Rebellion, as it came to be called, had now reached its furthest extent. The rebels were even able to occupy, for more than a year, the semi-European city of Shanghai. But then the tide turned. The latent forces of the empire gradually asserted themselves. The rebels lost ground, their armies were defeated, and in 1859 Nanking itself was besieged, and the celestial king trembled in his palace. The end seemed to be at hand, when there was a sudden twist of fortune's wheel. The War of 1860, the invasion of China by European armies, their march into the interior, and their occupation of Peking, not only saved the rebels from destruction, but allowed them to recover the greater part of what they had lost. Once more they seized upon the provinces of the Delta, 
once more they menaced Shanghai. It was clear that the imperial army was incompetent, and the Shanghai merchants determined to provide for their own safety as best they could. They accordingly got together a body of troops, partly Chinese and partly European, and under European officers, to which they entrusted the defense of the town. This small force, which, after a few preliminary successes, received from the Chinese government the title of the ever-victorious army, was able to hold the rebels at bay, but it could do no more. For two years Shanghai was in constant danger. The Taipings, steadily growing in power, were spreading destruction far and wide. The ever-victorious army was the only force capable of opposing them, and the ever-victorious army was defeated more often than not. Its first European leader had been killed, his successor quarreled with the Chinese governor, Li Hung Chang, and was dismissed. At last it was determined to ask the general at the head of the British Army of Occupation for the loan of an officer to command the force. The English, who had been at first inclined to favor the Taipings on religious grounds, were now convinced on practical grounds of the necessity of suppressing them. It was in these circumstances that, in early 1863, the command of the ever-victorious army was offered to Gordon. He accepted it, received the title of general from the Chinese authorities, and entered forthwith upon his new task. He was just thirty. In eighteen months, he told Li Hung Chang, the business would be finished, and he was as good as his word. The difficulties before him were very great. A vast tract of country was in possession of the rebels, an area at the lowest estimate of 14,000 square miles with a population of 20 million. For centuries, this low-lying plain of the Yangtze Delta rich in silk and tea, fertilized by elaborate irrigation and covered with great walled cities, had been one of the most flourishing districts in China. Though it was now being rapidly ruined by the depredations of the Taipings, its strategic strength was obviously enormous. Gordon, however, with the eye of a born general, perceived that he could convert the very feature of the country which, on the face of it, most favored an army on the defense, its complicated geographical system of interlacing roads and waterways, canals, lakes, and rivers, into a means of offensive warfare. The force at his disposal was small, but it was mobile. He had a passion for map-making, and had already, in his leisure hours, made a careful survey of the country around Shanghai. He was thus able to execute a series of maneuvers which proved fatal to the enemy. By swift marches and counter-marches, by sudden attacks and surprises, above all by the dispatch of armed steamboats up the circuitous waterways into positions from which they could fall upon the enemy in reverse, he was able gradually to force back the rebels, to cut them off piecemeal in the field, and to seize upon their cities. But, Brilliant as these operations were, Gordon's military genius showed itself no less unmistakably in other directions. The ever-victorious army, recruited from the riff-raff of Shanghai, 
was an ill-disciplined, ill-organized body of about three thousand men, constantly on the verge of mutiny, supporting itself on plunder, and, at the slightest provocation, melting into thin air. Gordon, by sheer force of character, established over this incoherent mass of ruffians an extraordinary ascendancy. He drilled them with rigid severity, he put them into a uniform, armed them systematically, substituted pay for loot, and was even able, at last, to introduce regulations of a sanitary kind. There were some terrible scenes, in which the general, alone, faced the whole furious army, and quelled scenes of rage, desperation, towering courage, and summary execution. Eventually he attained an almost magical prestige. Walking at the head of his troops, with nothing but a light cane in his hand, he seemed to pass through every danger with the scatheless equanimity of a demigod. The Taipings themselves were awed into a strange reverence. More than once their leaders, in a frenzy of fear and admiration, ordered the sharpshooters not to take aim at the advancing figure of the faintly smiling Englishman. It is significant that Gordon found it easier to win battles and to crush mutineers than to keep on good terms with the Chinese authorities. He had to act in cooperation with a large native force, and it was only natural that the general at the head of it should grow more and more jealous and angry as the Englishman's successes revealed more and more clearly his own incompetence. At first, indeed, Gordon could rely upon the support of the governor. Li Hung Chang's experience of Europeans had been hitherto limited to low-class adventurers, and Gordon came as a revelation. It is a direct blessing from heaven, he noted in his diary, the coming of this British Gordon. He is superior in manner and bearing to any of the foreigners whom I have come into contact with, and does not show outwardly that conceit which makes most of them repugnant in my sight. A few months later, after he had accompanied Gordon on a victorious expedition, the Mandarin's enthusiasm burst forth. "'What a sight for tired eyes,' he wrote. "'What an elixir for a heavy heart, to see this splendid Englishman fight! If there is anything that I admire, nearly as much as the superb scholarship of Tseng Kuafan, it is the military qualities of this fine officer. He is a glorious fellow. In his emotion, Li Hung Chang addressed Gordon as his brother, declaring that he considered him worthy to fill the place of his brother who is departed. Could I have said more in all the words of the world? Then something happened, which impressed and mystified the sensitive Chinaman. The Englishman's face was first filled with a deep pleasure, and then he seemed to be thinking of something depressing and sad, for the smile went from his mouth, and there were tears in his eyes when he thanked me for what I had said. Can it be that he has, or has had, some great trouble in his life, and that he fights recklessly to forget it, or that death has no terrors for him? But, as time went on, Li Hung Chang's attitude began to change. "'General Gordon,' he notes in July, "'must control his tongue, even if he lets his mind run loose.' The Englishman had accused him of intriguing with the Chinese general, 
and of withholding money due to the ever-victorious army. Why does he not accord me the honors that are due to me, as head of the military and civil authority in these parts? By September, the governor's earlier transports had been replaced by a more judicial frame of mind. With his many faults, his pride, his temper, and his never-ending demand for money, for one is a nobleman, and in spite of all I have said to him or about him, I will ever think most highly of him. He is an honest man, but difficult to get on with. Disagreements of this kind might perhaps have been tided over until the end of the campaign, but an unfortunate incident suddenly led to a more serious quarrel. Gordon's advance had been fiercely contested, but it had been constant. He had captured several important towns, and in October he laid siege to the city of Suchow, once one of the most famous and splendid in China. In December, its fall being obviously imminent, the Taiping leaders agreed to surrender it on condition that their lives were spared. Gordon was a party to the agreement, and laid special stress upon his presence with the imperial forces as a pledge of its fulfillment. No sooner, however, was the city surrendered than the rebel Wangs were assassinated. In his fury, it is said that Gordon searched everywhere for Li Hung Chang with a loaded pistol in his hand. He was convinced of the complicity of the governor, who, on his side, denied that he was responsible for what had happened. I asked him why I should plot and go around a mountain, when a mere order, written with five strokes of the quill, would have accomplished the same thing. He did not answer, but he insulted me, and said he would report my treachery, as he called it, to Shanghai and England. Let him do so. He cannot bring the crazy wangs back. The agitated Mandarin hoped to placate Gordon by a large gratuity and an imperial medal, but the plan was not successful. General Gordon, he writes, called upon me in his angriest mood. He repeated his former speeches about the wangs. I did not attempt to argue with him. He refused the ten thousand tales, which I had ready for him, and, with an oath, said that he did not want the throne's medal. This is showing the greatest disrespect. Gordon resigned his command, and it was only with the utmost reluctance that he agreed at last to resume it. An arduous and terrible series of operations followed, but they were successful, and by June 1864 the ever-victorious army, having accomplished its task, was disbanded. The imperial forces now closed around Nanking. The last hopes of the Tian Wang had vanished. In the recesses of his seraglio, the celestial king, judging that the time had come for the conclusion of his mission, swallowed gold leaf until he ascended to heaven. In July, Nanking was taken, the remaining chiefs were executed, and the rebellion was at an end. The Chinese government gave Gordon the highest rank in its military hierarchy, and invested him with the yellow jacket and the peacock's feather. He rejected an enormous offer of money, but he could not refuse a great gold medal, specially struck in his honor by order of the emperor. At the end of the year he returned to England, where the conqueror of the Taipings was made a companion of the bath. That the English authorities should have seen fit to recognize Gordon's services by the reward 
usually reserved for industrious clerks, was typical of their attitude towards him until the very end of his career. Perhaps if he had been ready to make the most of the wave of popularity which greeted him on his return, if he had advertised his fame and, amid high circles, played the part of Chinese Gordon in a becoming manner, the results would have been different. But he was by nature farouche. His soul revolted against dinner parties and stiff shirts, and the presence of ladies, especially of fashionable ladies, filled him with uneasiness. He had, besides, a deeper dread of the world's contaminations. And so, when he was appointed to Gravesend to supervise the erection of a system of forts at the mouth of the Thames, he remained there quietly for six years, and at last was almost forgotten. The forts, which were extremely expensive and quite useless, occupied his working hours. His leisure he devoted to acts of charity and to religious contemplation. The neighborhood was a poverty-stricken one, and the kind colonel, with his tripping step and simple manner, was soon a familiar figure in it, chatting with the seamen, taking provisions to starving families, or visiting some bedridden old woman to light her fire. He was particularly fond of boys. Ragged street Arabs and rough sailor lads crowded about him. They were made free of his house and garden. They visited him in the evenings for lessons and advice. He helped them, found them employment, corresponded with them when they went out into the world. They were, he said, his wangs. It was only by a singular austerity of living that he was able to afford such a variety of charitable expenses. The easy luxuries of his class and station were unknown to him. His clothes verged upon the shabby, and his frugal meals were eaten at a table with a drawer into which the loaf and plate were quickly swept at the approach of his poor visitors. Special occasions demanded special sacrifices. When, during the Lancashire famine, a public subscription was opened, finding that he had no ready money, he remembered his Chinese medal, and, after effacing the inscription, dispatched it as an anonymous gift. Except for his boys and his paupers, he lived alone. In his solitude, he ruminated upon the mysteries of the universe, and those religious tendencies which had already shown themselves now became a fixed and dominating factor in his life. His reading was confined almost entirely to the Bible, but the Bible he read and re-read with an untiring, unending assiduity. There he was convinced all truth was to be found, and he was equally convinced that he could find it. The doubts of philosophers, the investigations of commentators, the smiles of men of the world, the dogmas of churches, such things meant nothing to the colonel. Two facts alone were evident. There was the Bible, and there was himself, and all that remained to be done was for him to discover what were the Bible's instructions, and to act accordingly. In order to make this discovery, it was only necessary for him to read the Bible over and over again, and therefore, for the rest of his life, he did so. The faith that he evolved was mystical and fatalistic. It was also highly unconventional. His creed, 
based on the narrow foundations of Jewish scripture, eked out occasionally by some English evangelical manual, was yet wide enough to ignore every doctrinal difference, and even at moments to transcend the bounds of Christianity itself. The just man was he who submitted to the will of God, and the will of God, inscrutable and absolute, could be served aright only by those who turned away from earthly desires and temporal temptations, to rest themselves wholeheartedly upon the indwelling spirit. Human beings were the transitory embodiments of souls who had existed through an infinite past, and would continue to exist through an infinite future. The world was vanity, the flesh was dust and ashes. A man, Gordon wrote to his sister, who knows not the secret, who has not the indwelling of God revealed to him, is like this, a picture of a circle with body and soul written within it. He takes the promises and curses as addressed to him as one man, and will not hear of there being any birth before his natural birth in any existence except with the body he is in. The man to whom the secret, the indwelling of God, is revealed like this. Picture of a circle with soul and body enclosed in two separate circles. He applies the promises to one and curses to the other if disobedient, which he must be, except the soul is enabled by God to rule. He then sees he is not of this world, for when he speaks of himself, he quite disregards the body his soul lives in, which is earthly. Such conceptions are familiar enough in the history of religious thought. They are those of the hermit and the fakir, and it might have been expected that, when once they had taken hold upon his mind, Gordon would have been content to lay aside the activities of his profession, and would have relapsed at last into the complete retirement of holy meditation. But there were other elements in his nature which urged him towards a very different course. He was no simple quietist. He was an English gentleman, an officer, a man of energy and action, a lover of danger and the audacities that defeat danger, a passionate creature, flowing over with the self-assertiveness of independent judgment and the arbitrary temper of command. Whatever he might find in his pocket-bible, it was not for such as he to dream out his days in devout obscurity. But, conveniently enough, he found nothing in his pocket-bible indicating that he should. What he did find was that the will of God was inscrutable and absolute, that it was man's duty to follow where God's hand led, and, if God's hand led towards violent excitements and extraordinary vicissitudes, that it was not only futile, it was impious to turn another way. Fatalism is always apt to be a double-edged philosophy, for while, on the one hand, it reveals the minutest occurrences as the immutable result of a rigid chain of infinitely predestined causes. On the other, it invests the wild incoherences of conduct or of circumstance with the sanctity of eternal law. And Gordon's fatalism was no exception. 
the same doctrine that led him to dally with omens, to search for prophetic texts, and to append, in brackets, the apotropaic initials D.V. after every statement in his letters implying futurity, led him also to envisage his moods and his desires, his passing reckless whims and his deep unconscious instincts, as the mysterious manifestations of the indwelling God. That there was danger lurking in such a creed, he was very well aware. The grosser temptations of the world, money and the vulgar attributes of power, had indeed no charms for him, but there were subtler and more insinuating allurements, which it was not so easy to resist. More than one observer declared that ambition was, in reality, the essential motive in his life, ambition neither for wealth nor titles, but for fame and influence, for the swaying of multitudes, and for that kind of enlarged and intensified existence where breath breathes most even in the mouths of men. Was it so? In the depths of Gordon's soul there were intertwining contradictions, intricate recesses where egoism and renunciation melted into one another, where the flesh lost itself in the spirit, and the spirit in the flesh. What was the will of God? The question, which first became insistent during his retirement at Gravesend, never afterwards left him. It might also be said that he spent the remainder of his life in searching for the answer to it. In all his odysseys, in all his strange and agitated adventures, a day never passed on which he neglected the voice of eternal wisdom as it spoke through the words of Paul or Solomon, of Jonah or Habakkuk. He opened his Bible, he read, and then noted down his reflections upon scraps of paper, which, periodically pinned together, he dispatched to one or other of his religious friends, and particularly his sister Augusta. The published extracts from these voluminous outpourings lay bare the inner history of Gordon's spirit and reveal the pious visionary of Gravesend in the restless hero of three continents. End of section 17